spark the conversation. Let's hit them with the peace and love. Cause it's all about the good, the vibes. Let's hit them with the peace and love. Welcome to the Spark the Conversation podcast in partnership with Gonjapreneur.com. I'm your host, Bianca Green. I'm super stoked today to be talking to a drug war veteran and dear friend, Dale Sky Jones. She is the chancellor of Oaksterdam University, a mother, a wife, and an overall badass. Um, she inspired me many, many years ago um, in a lot of advocacy uh, realms, and She's been fighting the good fight for a long, long time. Um, she has seen Oaksterdam get raided. She has seen people have their children taken away for being cannabis patients. And today I'm really excited to sit down with her so she can share a bit of her journey and talk about where we're at today. Um, you know, Dale was very instrumental in making sure that California legalization was a priority. She put together the reform, uh, California coalition last year. Um, and then that morphed into some amendments that went into 64 and, you know, now cannabis is legal. I did get a chance to sit down with her before legalization. Um, and I think by the time this podcast comes out, she'll be out of the closet that, um, she, uh, found out that she was pregnant the same day of recording the podcast. So I'm super, super stoked to sit down with her. I admire her so much and she drops knowledge, you know, every time she speaks. So I'm looking forward to this today. So, hi, we're at um, Oaksterdam University with Dale Sky Jones today. Thank you so much for being here with me. Um, you and I have been friends for quite some time, um, drug, drug policy comrades to a degree. Um, and, you know, coming to Oaksterdam over the years to visit you, why don't you tell me and our listeners what it is exactly the Oaksterdam University's mission is and what you guys do here? Sure. Well, and I'm just thrilled to have you, Bianca. So thank you for bringing Spark the Conversation and uh, just lots of fun. You know, Oaksterdam University, I think uh, a lot of folks think that they know what we are. Uh, but having not been through the doors, it's hard for them to contemplate. Some people just picture some dark, smoky room where we're doing like joint rolling classes in the back. Um, you know, the reality is uh, we were founded back in 2007 with a mission to provide quality training for the cannabis industry. And this was back before it was an industry. In fact, we got a lot of guffs that we even called it an industry. Mm. It was still very much a movement. But we believed that the only way to be taken seriously, the only way to actually become regulated was to start treating ourselves as an industry and self-regulating in the process. And that started with education. Over time, it, it began really folks just trying to learn how to grow their own medicine, how to be a qualified patient, and their rights and responsibilities under the law. Our founder first started teaching classes honestly, just to get people to show up to the city council meetings. And he thought, well, what do people want from me? They want to learn how to grow. What do I want from them? I want them to show up. And so he put out this idea of education almost as a 
quid pro quo. I'll teach you to grow, and then I need you to help me go move this policy because it's going to take a lot of hands to lift. And so we'll give you the horticulture class, but first, first you have to take the prerequisites, which are politics, history, and legal. Mm. Now, what that did was convert otherwise you know, law-abiding citizens who just wanted to become a student um, into freedom fighters. Mm. Because once you know, you can't unlearn what you just found out. Um, and so that was, you know, the trick <laughs> was get in here and let us tell you the truth. And then, by the way, we'll teach you how to grow. And once you know the truth, you can't help but join the fight. Mm. The students that first came to us were just trying to be patients, and then they wanted to get a job. So uh, we started adding classes, and it went beyond just the here's how to be a patient, here's how to cultivate for yourself. We started adding cooking with cannabis and extraction classes, and then an advocacy and an economics class, and then a bud tending class which we quickly renamed uh, patient consultant uh, because I swore I wouldn't call it bud tender until we legalized. <laughs> so hurry up so I can change the name of my class. Um, and then it, it, it slowly went from people trying to find a job to people wanting to start a company. And we got this influx of entrepreneurs and folks that were looking to invest and understand. And then the federal raid happened, the smackdown happened, and it went back to, bam, people just learning how to be qualified patients and grow in their closet uh, because everyone was scared back out uh, of, of what had been going on here in California. Over the last couple of years since Colorado, uh, Washington have passed, since California has finally enacted the MCRSA and uh, you know, other states, including Guam, go Guam, nobody ever mentions Guam, <laughs> much love for Guam, that uh, it's progressed to the point where now we're training regulators, we're training legislative analysts, we're training bureaucrats on how to regulate the cannabis industry. And I dare say that that's what I've almost had the most fun with lately. It's hmm. very heartening to see bureaucrats, you know, people that were very fearful now that it's their job to do so, they are embracing it wholly. These folks are trying to do a good job. They're trying to do it the right way the first time. Mm. And that is inspiring for me when I see our government officials really trying to get it right for Californians. That's amazing because it was so opposite, right, when you first started Freedom Fighting for the Plant. Tell me about some of the uh, roadblocks that you hit when you first came out as an advocate and educator in the cannabis space? You know, there's a, a couple times that I can think of that were um, really informative for me. The first was I got a call from a patient, and this is back when I was still working with doctors down in Orange County. This is how I got started in the cannabis industry was managing doctors who worked for uh, LA General and they saw a lot of patients come through, but they weren't allowed to talk about cannabis with them. Mm. And so this group of doctors formed a side clinic where each of them would work one day a week at this clinic doing medical cannabis recommendations. And what year was this? This was back in 2007 in Orange County. Wow. Yeah, can we where say right-wing conservative? Where they're still not very friendly. No. We, they wouldn't, Irvine wouldn't even, didn't accept our bus tour. And Irvine is exactly where my office was. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, it's still um, I'm very familiar with the conservative yeah. uh, Orange County. But what was, what was remarkable is there were task forces, these roaming task forces um, over tri-county areas 
that were just looking for doctors to try to put them out of business. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to get doctors to either do questionable recommendations or get paperwork that, that so they could somehow up. turn in. Total, total setup. Um, and I got a phone call from a patient um, who, who had actually gone through the process and while he was in the office, he says, congratulations, Dale. It's like, for what? He's like, you run the best office that we have in Southern California. You're the only office that wouldn't let him in. It's like, I'm sorry, what are you talking about? It's like, well, my brother is on this task force and they've been trying to get an appointment with you for the last three months. And the only way they could get in was to send me because I'm a real patient. And you almost didn't give me a recommendation. So clearly you guys are doing it right. You're doing it well. In fact, one of the doctors that worked for me said no more than he said yes because he wanted people to try other stuff. And whether or not you agree with that, this was how we had to operate in conservative Orange County, California. And so just realizing that we had been under the microscope like that, and I remembered some unusual calls of people trying to get an appointment, but they couldn't really tell me what was wrong with them. Mm. So I just simply don't set appointments for people that didn't seem to have their act together. Uh, and it turns out it was because they were used to just winging it and getting what they wanted. And so just realizing that I came that close and the actions that we did protected five doctors from potentially being in trouble for something that was truly helping people, that was my first taste that even though you think what you're doing is right, even though you're doing it entirely by the letter and the spirit of the law, there are still people looking for you to take you down and make an example of you. And they will use any thread, any thread they can, they will yank on and unravel you. And that's why you gotta keep it tight. That's part of what we teach at Oaksterdam is how to set yourself up for success, how to prepare for the worst, and then we're gonna show you how to wing it because everyone is still very much winging it these days. Yeah. And you just have to find your parameters the next time <clears throat> that I truly personally had, it's the only time I've ever been attacked in my mind for being an advocate or an activist on any level. You know, I kept waiting to be attacked. I kept expecting to be attacked. And I was very fearful the first few years. I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't know how to introduce the concept of what I did for a living. I would just say, oh, I work in medicine. I, w I work with patients. But I wouldn't find ways to explain what I did or why I did it because I was always afraid that somebody was going to attack me. Again, remember, this is 2007, yeah. 2008. I just quit you know, a corporate job where I was fully vested to go do what? Move to California <laughs> to do what? <laughs> I thought it was crazy. <laughs> I couldn't explain that to people, so I lied to everyone about what I was going and doing because it felt right to be doing it, but I hadn't quite figured out how to explain it. Yeah. And so I just didn't talk about it. I said, I work in medicine, and if they asked me anything else, I'd start talking about billing, and people would just shut down, turn off, and tune out. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a really easy way to never talk about it because people don't actually care. Well, was, once you start telling the truth, people disconnect. They <laughs> exactly. like to be entertained a little bit more than they if want had, the facts. Right? Yeah. And if yeah, I had just yeah. said cannabis, they would have been entirely entertained, but I was not looking to be their entertainment yeah. for the day. And I hadn't figured out how to defend myself yet. But here's what's so remarkable, Bianca. I never had to. And this is the part that I want to get across to your listeners, is all of that fear was internal. It was my own head attacking myself with all of the same, same stigmas. I didn't need anybody else to do it. I was doing it to myself to the point that I wouldn't even tell my grandma what I was doing. And then all of a sudden she died. And mm -hmm. I didn't even get the chance to explain to her 
that I might be trying to save the world over here because I couldn't figure out how to explain to her what I was doing. And so it was years later that I finally got to the point of being out and being unafraid and mm. being vocal. And I showed up to a press conference, a press conference, mind you. This was not a cannabis event. This was not a smoke out. <laughs> this was a, uh, a, a, the most dangerous thing in the room were the cameras. Mm. Um, it was a pure press conference in a hotel in San Francisco. And it involved the former president of Mexico, Vicente Fox. Um, there were a couple of other people on the stage. I think Gail, Dale Geringer was there as well as um, Harborside uh, Steve D'Angelo, who, when he saw me arrive, asked me if I would participate in the press conference. So I had arrived with my two-year-old, and I wasn't planning on participating. Mm. He was maybe two and a half at the time. And so he sat in the audience um, with Nate Bradley of the CCIA, actually grabbed him, and... Um, and he just kind of like walked around the room while the press conference was going on. He didn't actually say anything because the kid didn't talk until he was three and a half. So not a peep even came out of him. But he was present. He mm. was there. And at a certain point in the middle of the press conference, he, walked, he came right up, crawled into my lap and sat there while Vicente Fox was talking. I suddenly had a two-year-old in my lap. So I went ahead and addressed that this was also about the children. And mm. the people on the stage agreed with me that this was this is why I'm doing it, is for the children, is to keep children with their families. And after the fact, a reporter from San Francisco, instead of writing about Vicente Fox, instead of writing about his message or the message, the importance of uh, Mexican and American relations, instead she chose to attack me for having a child involved in a marijuana event. And called it smoke gets in your smoke and said, you know, I can't even hear anything that they said over a two-year-old being present in the room, that there shouldn't have been a child in that room, certainly not during a conversation about drugs. And I got to be honest with you, Bianca, I was pregnant with my second child at that point, had never experienced such vitriol from another woman. She accused me of treating my child as though it was uh, a, a bracelet, something that you accessorize, mm. that I brought my kid with me as an accessory because apparently she's never had to raise a child largely by herself because I wasn't getting a paycheck. We had just been raided very recently. When we were raided, we lost everything, including the paycheck and health insurance for the very kid we were talking about there. And my husband was working six days a week to try to support the family. So I couldn't afford childcare. It wasn't an option for me at that time because I didn't have anything extra. And she's attacking me for being a mother with her child present. And that was probably, it, it knocked me to my knees. Mm, I can imagine. And I didn't come back out for probably nine months after that. I mean, I was still pregnant, and I felt like I was a bad person for being pregnant and talking about this at the same time. And I've come to realize that it's going to take women like me to do that anyway, to make it okay for everybody else. You've been such an amazing advocate and is such an amazing face and voice for this industry and move, more importantly, the movement before it became one. And you should be very proud of everything that you've done. And people forget often that it's a war.
and there are casualties of war. I mean, I've fought the front lines in D.C. with patients who've died fighting for the freedom of the plant. And, you know, I think you, you as a female and a lot of the females that have been coming forward throughout the years, you know, based on people like yourself and myself coming out Mm -hmm. of the closet has really opened the compassionate side of this movement. So mazel tov to you (laughs) for bringing your child to that event because it's, you know, is to to identify um, a, a family as not a unit because you believe in something is completely inappropriate. You know, now we're looking at it as, you know, plant-based medicine. We're changing the narrative about it. And that's, you know, not easy. It's not easy for conservatives to accept that. It's not easy for people who have been hit with propaganda all of these years to understand that. And you've done it so gracefully. Like you really have. I mean, there's there's a lot of really great drug war veterans, but you are one of them that's definitely led California um, into the place that it's been. And Oaksterdam University is famous around the globe. Uh, you know, one of our, our, our social media people that's on this tour today was talking about how in high school, you know, they, always, they all wanted to go to Oaksterdam University instead of, you know, another university because they wanted to come and get cannabis education. That in and of itself is a huge, she's from Virginia. Yeah. You know, that's a huge thing. You're making a global impact. And that, I know it sucks. I mean, these people are, are, can be mean, but Good at you, you know, good on you, however that expression goes. Like you really, you know, you set the tone for other women to come out who wanted to seek alternatives and fight for people who need it the most. And that's the truth. I think that what made it all okay was the women that came to me after the fact. I didn't realize that I was becoming a spokeswoman for motherhood at the Mm. same time that I was being a spokeswoman for cannabis policy reform. And that was, I think, the shocker to me when I realized that it was not only hand in hand, but that my power as an advocate came because I was a mother. (laughs) That they, not only you, you can't remove them from one another, but you shouldn't. And I've also realized on another level, I'm introducing a concept that I never believed in myself as a young entrepreneur, as a young person. I'm 41 now, and I went straight into corporate at 18. I mean, actually 15, but (laughs) I didn't get the titles until 18. And you start to realize that, like, there are no babies in corporate. There's no crying in corporate. There's no crying in baseball. Like, you know, there's a few things that you are and aren't allowed to do, but you're certainly not allowed to be a mom out loud Mm -hmm. when you're in any of these scenarios. And I realize that the young women and young men that I hire today that watch me, I didn't have a choice at the time. I was working from home like I was supposed to um, when my first child was born. I took a leave of absence for maternity and then I just came back to work like one day a week and did everything from home or phone. And when the raid happened, I had to be present. I had to show up, which meant I had to strap the baby on and go to work because I didn't have anywhere or anyone to leave him with. We didn't have family, so it was just me, my husband, and my baby. And now I look back and realize that all of these young people that have worked for me since 2012, since the raid, at the very least, since that happened. The, the Oaksterdam raid. Because right, we've was, been here since 2007. But right? Right, the yeah. raid, it was right down the street. The, the big, it was actually six locations were raided simultaneously. Um, but at that point of, of the raid, 
when, when you do what you have to do because there's no options. I just introduced to a whole other group of people that the new concept of working mom is that you, you can actually bring your kid to work with you. I have a baby run in my office. And when people come for meetings with me, there's often a nanny and a kid present. So, you know, people get accustomed to that. You know, the first time it's a little bit weird, but I've actually found it gives better meetings. You know, yeah. it brings out the best in people to well, have kids around. Well, we had that time where we interviewed Gavin Newsom. And oh, I interviewed Gavin Newsom and you were there with, the, I mean, Jackson, right? I think that was Jesse, actually. Jesse, Jesse okay, yeah, Jesse's your on. youngest strapped on. I mean, he was only like two months if, if, if. And you were standing behind the camera manning it. You I know, know, and I'm trying to keep the baby from cooing yeah, into yeah. the <laughs> microphone while you're interviewing yeah, Gavin Yeah, because Newsom. that's how advocacy goes. You know, now you it's, 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 it's very bootstrapped. Now we're getting a lot more attention on it because it's popular. But, I mean, that was only two years ago. It's kind of hard to believe. It's really hard to believe wow. how, how far it's come. I mean, I really like having the elevated conversation about the entrepreneurialism, and I appreciate it. But I think it's important for people to understand where we came from, the challenges we still face, and where we're headed. Um, so speak to that a little bit. Um, do you have any advice for inspiring entrepreneurs? Well, I know here at Oaksterdam what we always try to talk to people about, and you know, it's, it's after four days of intensive training. So we've filled your, you know, five pound brain with 10 pounds of information yeah. and just stuffing it in the air at that point by the, by the end. But there's a couple of things that I really try to impart to the students because folks come to us for so many different reasons. Sometimes it's very personal. They're trying to help someone very close to them or themselves in, in some cases. And in others, it's very entrepreneurial. You know, they're trying to figure out Either you know whatever industry they used to be a part of has collapsed, or they've realized that the best way to get ahead in their current industry is to figure out how to also cater to the cannabis industry as an ancillary option. We train gladiators here at Oaksterdam. And when I say gladiator, this is a trained fighter, okay? So our gladiators are often first through the wall. They sometimes get the most bloody. They sometimes make the most money. But in that process of training them how to fight, I ask them to do two things. Say, please, please, as you move forward, you need to show up. And that means show up to vote. Mm. And once you show up to vote, you get called for jury duty. <laughs> and you need to show up to that, too. <laughs> and Set that's actually, duties. that is the big one. Yeah. And then when you get jury duty, you sit and you pray to get that marijuana and that must, case. That must be really hard because, you know, a lot of advocates and a lot of people who I know that are getting into this industry are revolutionists to some degree. You know, and they are against the system to, to you know... I don't know. Well, some, some are, and, and I dare say that some of the, the inspiration of the industry were the very instigators that you speak of. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the folks that are coming in now think of themselves as otherwise law-abiding citizens. They're just you know, practicing a little political discord by tiptoeing into the cannabis industry. They don't even realize how illegal it, it really is. Right. And unless you are part of the national discussion, unless you are part of moving the national issue forward, and when I say national, I mean act of Congress mm -hmm. to legalize cannabis, because right now we are looking at a policy decision and a change in the face of the White House, a change in the face of some of these elected positions, a change in the attorney general can entirely change the face of everything that we are looking at right now, entirely. And God forbid it's a President Trump with an A.G. Christie in there, although I think Christie's probably ruined it 
for himself by now. But at the end of the day, if you are not part of the federal discussion, and there's only two groups really genuinely working on the national conversation, and that's Americans for Safe Access for patients, yeah. and the National Cannabis Industry Association for business. And if you're not part of one of those two groups and tithing to at least one or both of those two groups. If you're not part of that solution, you are part of the problem and you're barely above the ostrich awaiting the fate of the dinosaur. The second thing that I ask people to do, other than show up, <laughs> which is really most of it. Because <laughs> that's is, the biggest thing. Well, showing, showing up, up, oh my God, and it's the hardest part Power too. numbers, it's, it, it's an important it's thing. Very, it, it sounds simple, but it's not. Um, and that's why I remind people show up. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's important to do that. Um, but the other is to continue to advocate. And in, in advocating, that means both advocating up and down. And the way that I explain it to them is you have to continue to advocate up to your elected officials, to the thought leaders, that we have responsibilities, like don't say the word recreational because mm -hmm. that makes it sound fun for kids. We don't want this to sound fun for kids, and we don't want other parents thinking about their kids recreating when they're walking into the voting booth either, because that is not helping our cause. So let's stop calling it recreational. Mm. So just things along those lines of being a thought leader and being responsible and advocating up for these things to the powers that be, so to speak. But what I leave every class with is this concept that you have to keep looking back and you have to make sure that you always advocate down as you rise yourself up in your company and your business and everything else, that you must advocate for the very people that got us here, mm. that we got here on the backs of patients. And no matter what you do, whether you're the guy that gets bloody or you're the guy that makes money, if you're the guy that makes the most money, you had better find ways to give back, whether that's compassion programs for people that can't afford it, it's or your local boys and girls club, mm -hmm. you have to find a way to make sure that you are leaving your community better than you found it. And then I get a whoop and cheer out of the audience and everyone says, we're with you, and out the door they go. And you know what I found, Bianca, is every room I've walked into in the last few years, a third of the room is Oaksterdam alumni. Mm, it's our amazing. alumni who's going yeah. out and changing the world. That's who's changing the laws in New York and Florida and Uruguay. This is our alumni that are coming in and learning how it's done and they are going out and they are making it happen. Well, it's a very impactful brand. It's a very, you're a very impactful advocate. Um, and you know, the movement and the new found industry really appreciates all the hard work you've put into it. Tell me about some of the social responsibility you have um, at Oaksterdam. What is it in your own business model? And then how do you encourage uh, your students? You just sort of tapped on it, but, but let's, let's talk about it a little bit more. Um, you, the social responsibility that you advocate for your um, students to go out and, and bring to the table. Well, in addition to what I just mentioned and just tr truly encouraging people to think about how they can give back and, and do more, um, and a lot of people will, you just have to ask them. And also remembering to ask the people that you're working with, hi, we're new, we have a memo of understanding, we're gonna go do business together, I'm going to ask you, what is your philosophy on this? And trust me, I do. And I find out, and that's how I decide whether or not I work with yeah, you. Yeah, me too. If this is not your philosophy, you are not somebody I'm ever going to work with. And you're going to find that there's a lot of other rather successful brands out there that will not work with you unless you have a strategy for that. The other thing that we do is try to impress upon our students that this revolution that we're in right now, this social revolution, is 
the most important civil rights revolution of our time. And it's the next iteration of what happened in the 50s. This could be the end of the new Jim Crow. Mm. If we do this properly, we can finally disassemble the school to prison pipeline that's currently in our country that is happening on the back of the drug war. But the reality is, if we're not careful, we're just simply gonna usher in the next Jim Crow. And that's gonna happen through our regulatory regimes. If you look to what Florida recently did, last year they put out for five, an RFP for five uh, businesses to apply to be cultivators. Mm. You had to have 30 years continuous in cultivation in the nursery industry in order to even apply. How many black people do you know owned industry, owned, owned a nursery 30 years ago in Florida? None. How many women? None. How many veterans? None. So therein lies the problem. And in Florida, fortunately, the, the Black Farmers Association, pardon me, sued and actually got, based on the fact that there were none, <laughs> uh, two extra permits issued, one for themselves. When you even look to Maryland, how many, uh, I don't think that there was a single solitary person of color, no one ethnic earned any of the permits. Mm. And so how is it that we're now writing these new laws to still make impossible? These are the same people that, that are going to jail while other people are making money. And now we have to make sure that we're writing laws that don't keep them out because they've been in jail. Mm. These are our experts, people. <laughs> these yeah. are not the people yeah. that we should be kicking out of the industry. But also, you know, back to something that I said early on about just small business and needing to protect small business. And I don't mean small business like 50 and under employees, I mean micro businesses. Mm -hmm. Because this is where women, people of color, and veterans thrive, thrive. is totally. in small business. Absolutely. And small business was 86% of our American economy last year. There's no reason it should be any different in the cannabis industry. Well, Dale, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, it's it's an honor. I mean, you and I have, have seen each other through a lot through this whole process. And, you know, November 8th is right around the corner. Um, it's a it's a it's a it's bittersweet in a lot of ways. Right. Um, but I, I definitely feel like, you know, the advocacy that you and, and your organization that you put together, CCPR, really, you know, had instrumental insurmountable I can't even talk. It's true. <laughs> um, you know, um, participation in that and, and really, really did a lot to, um, you know, advocate for things um, in that initiative. So, you know, congratulations to you on, on all of the efforts that you've put forth and keeping Oaksterdam alive even after a raid. Um, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. So can you tell me where um, people can find you? Well, you can find me at oaksterdam.com. Uh, we're also at reformca.com, but I think oaksterdam.com is probably the best place to go. O-A-K-S-T-E-R-D-A-M. And your um, 
call your semesters how did how does that work when if people want to get involved you can come take classes one of two ways we do have a very comprehensive program in the semester form there's two different courses the classic course which covers a little bit of everything and then we developed a specific horticulture course that really does a deep dive on both indoor and outdoor um, if you're unable to come for 14 full weeks, we also have uh, the um, express program, if you will. You can come and take a seminar in four days. And so you get most of the materials that you would in a semester condensed into four days. The only difference is with horticulture, if you want outdoor, you do have to come to the semester. We just focus on indoor in the seminar. But we also have a seminar coming up here in Las Vegas, November 11th. And then we're taking a bite of the big apple at the beginning of December as well. Oh, that's wonderful. Expanding. Yes. So you don't have to come to us. We come to you. We'll be online next year. So you can just come to Oaksterdam in your underwear. No, you can't actually come through my doors in your underwear. You can sit on your couch online. <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And we will, you know, we want to keep in touch with you and, and keep track your progress with Oaksterdam and keep us informed on where you guys are Absolutely. at. Absolutely. And know? make sure you get out and vote. Nothing is inevitable. Yeah. Thank you. We know that. We talk about that a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Nothing is inevitable. I've worked it is way too damn hard for inevitable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're not leaving it up to people who aren't ta being active, right? Show up. Show up. Show up. That's Thank how it you, works. Bianca. Thank you, Dale. Spark the Conversation is really excited to do this partnership with Ganjapreneur.com, creating these podcasts. Um, it's a resource for cannabis professionals advocates, patients, business owners, um, anyone really who's in favor of responsible growth. So visit entrepreneur.com for daily cannabis news, uh, career openings, company profiles, and of course, you know, more episodes of this podcast. Um, we're thankful to them and the partnership that we have with them. And we appreciate the fact that they spark the conversation and help entrepreneurs grow. All I want you to do is spark the conversation.